Welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel. I'm Ben Simon. I'm Jesse Spur. I'm Jess Stokes Parish, and you're listening to Simulcast. Connecting the healthcare simulation community. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and today we've got the next in our collaborative episode with Advances in Simulation. And we're featuring a recent article just from this year titled Immediate Faculty Feedback Using Debriefing Timing Data and Conversational Diagrams. And this is by Andrew Coggins, Harry Hong, Koshik Baliga, and Hugh, and Lou Hallamack. And I'm here today with the first author, Andrew Coggins. But before I introduced him, I guess I want to set the scene for this. I mean, those of us who listen to Simulcast, uh, we know that simulation debriefing is actually very hard and most of us want to get better. But looking for the sources of good data on our performance can actually be quite hard. So what I'm hoping with this paper is that we're challenged to think about maybe some quantitative methods that might add to the existing uh, repertoire of uh, techniques that we can use to improve our debriefing. Well, Andrew Coggins, how are you? Uh, it's nice to have you along. Andrew Coggins is a uh, emergency physician who works in Sydney. He's been involved in simulation for quite a few years now, and his interests include debriefing and also clinical debriefing that he's also written articles about. And I would say you've done more than a smattering of academic contributions in your time. Uh, how are you, Andrew? I'm delighted to be on the podcast. I think I'm on the right one, but I always feel like a clinician that's dipping his toes into education. But um, yeah, I think I'm on the right podcast, so, and I'm really well. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Well, look, it would probably be useful for the Simulcast listeners to hear a little bit about just the work that you do in Sim, because I think all of that often builds up to then thinking about the research questions that we generate. Yeah, well, I mean, I've, you know, primarily I'm a clinician. I work three days in an academic centre in emergency medicine, but one day a week I dabble my toes into clinical debriefing and uh, simulation. Um, and we have some projects going on both of those in this work um, is part of that um, endeavour. Um, like I love simulation as a learner. So I remember as a registrar, um, re resident and student finding it one of the most uh, confronting but also meaningful learning experiences I had. And so, you know, moving into consultant role about 10 years ago, I, I thought it was um, inevitable that I would, you know, dabble in simulation to some degree. And it's become more than a hobby in the last five years. I've really got more into it academically as well as um, practically. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like your learners uh, include trainees in emergency medicine, presuming multi-professional uh, teams. Uh, do you do much work with uh, undergraduates or other groups? Yeah, we've, we, have a, we have a small sim centre. We have a team, really three uh, nurse educators, myself, working sort of on a contract. And we have anaesthetists and um, other people coming into the lab. And the, the majority of courses we do would be for sort of new grads, uh, early stage nurses and um you know, junior doctors would be our kind of peak, but we certainly do students and consultant courses in smaller numbers. Yep. Mm, mm. And it sounds like your enterprise is large enough that you have a pretty uh, important need to train faculty, support faculty in their debriefing skills, because I imagine you're bringing people on uh, probably all the time. That's right. So we're part of a district of uh, affiliated hospitals in Western Sydney. So within that district, we have Blacktown and Auburn, which also have some centres, and Blacktown's a sort of larger a uh, sim centre that hosts Harvard um, courses when they come over to Australia. So um, as a kind of cohort of hospitals, we can collaborate with um, scholarly work, um, research, but also, you know, training our new simulation educators. We do that all together. 
Excellent. Well, that's a nice segue, I think, into thinking about this article. And I want to really start with thinking about what was the problem that you and the and the author team were thinking about when you designed the study. And um, your background makes for really great reading where you take us through where you uh, think assessment and feedback for simulation debriefing is at and you talk about tools like the DASH and the OSAD. Um, do you want to just expand on that a little bit and tell us about, though, the gap that then you felt there was? I think Dash and OSAT are going to be useful, and we're going to we're going to continue to use them. But I suppose it was kind of like as a as a user or someone receiving feedback on my debriefing and trying to improve on this journey, which is is debriefing. I found myself scoring sevens from the learners. So if I gave the feedback to the learners, it was like sevens across the board, and I'm like, well, it wasn't a great debriefing, but you gave me a seven out of seven. That's for the Dash, and then for colleagues giving me feedback, they would usually give me a five or a six, and I'd ask them, hey, how can I get to a a five and a half or a six and a half, and they couldn't really articulate what it was. Um, they couldn't put their finger on it. Um, and that might just reflect the complexity of debriefing or, or feelings of gestalt we have around um, or embarrassment giving colleagues feedback. But I just was interested in whether there was some simple matrix or uh, information that could be used to kind of communicate what we observed. Um, we do that with learners. We say, you know, your CPR is 110 instead of 106, whatever we're aiming for. Your defibrillations were a bit slow or a bit fast, whatever it might be. Your communication was this or that. And we give we give specific examples which are measurable. But with debriefing feedback, even though the OSAD and DASH are measurable, I didn't really feel they were easy to kind of quantify in terms of how you could make improvements. So we were just dabbling in other ways you might be able to make small changes, particularly for experienced debriefers and people who have done maybe more than 10 debriefings in their in their journey. So that was what we tried to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess for the assessment nerds, there is a difference between having a behaviorally anchored rubric, which has, as you said, from one to seven and descriptors of what those performances look like, versus having something that I think particularly as healthcare professionals we like to attach to, which is real quantitative data. And I think people do have a need for both of those. And I think the other thing I'm just picking up on here is it is often hard to know whether this is an assessment problem or a feedback problem, isn't it? Like maybe the scores were right, but there was still a gap between how to help you be better. And I think that idea about is the feedback evaluative or is it coaching um, comes to mind as well. So such an interesting problem. All right, well, uh, let's think about it. Before we even get into the design of the study, um, you're, you had a pretty diverse group of four authors. How did that all come about? So with... Um... With uh, the supervising author, my, my colleague in Stanford, Dr. Halamick, you may have heard his podcasts on, for, he's, he's worked with NASA. He has an interest in similarly in quantitative um, measures of debriefing assessment. And so I was introduced to him by um, Adam Cheng after the master debriefing course in Calgary around 2018, 2019. And the other two authors are one of my residents who is um, going to do emergency medicine. That's Harry Hong and he assisted me with some of the, the, the data management and Kaushik Bilaga is um, one of my students. So he's an MD student at the University of Sydney, from originally from Canada, um, currently in Canada. And he's working with um, the, the other three of us on some other projects related to quantitative debriefing. This particular endeavor was just uh, cut slightly short. We ended, intended to get 20 to 30 debriefings. We only ended up getting 12. But um, it, we, we just kind of put it together in the innovation section of advances in simulation because we thought it would be interesting to sort of stimulate conversation and ideas um, we're not coming on to say this is a valid concept yet, but, but as, a, as an idea, it, it might be something worth looking into more in the future. 
Yeah, fantastic. All right. And I really like um, these research teams that include people at different levels of clinical and research experience. So hats off to you for doing that because it's not necessarily uh, easy. All right, well, let's get into the study. And I'm going to quote here from, uh, as you prepare us for the methodology section, you write at the end of the introduction, and I quote, we set out to A, examine the utility of basic quantitative debriefing performance data collected in real time, and B, to compare the use of this data to existing assessment tools such as DASH, and C, to assess the future role of this approach for debriefer faculty development. And then you go on to really get specific and say we're going to explore the use of recording length of contributions during debriefings and the use of conversational diagrams as a means of assessment of debriefing performance. So these are two, for me at least, quite novel ways of thinking about debriefing performance. So um, can you tell us a little bit about both of these things, the quantitative timings and the conversational diagrams? So, I mean, the idea comes from what we actually use for our feedback to the learners. You know, we, we use measurable um, instances and we often, with things like rapid cycle deliberate practice uh, type of training for skills, we tend to provide that information and expect incremental improvements. And so much in the same way, um, timing people in the, in the group is um, a way firstly to show inclusivity. Um, I suppose it might be an indirect measure of the debriefer's ability to get people talking in the group. It might also be um, an interdisciplinary debriefing is a way of measuring how medical students, nurses and consultants might interact more or less in that debriefing. So it may be used as a lead into more of a qualitative conversation in the, in, in the feedback process. So the, measuring everybody's time is a little bit of an undertaking. And I think it would be hard to do outside of a research setting because you have to sit there with a stopwatch and time every single person. Um, so it does require a degree of attention. But um I think it'd be very doable to do this as a ratio between the debriefer's contribution and the total participant contribution with a general awareness of each person's lack of or large amount of contribution. And then that leads into the diagrams, which you asked about, which tells you the, sh the shape of the diagram gives a suggestion of where the flow of the conversation is happening. So that originally was described in about 2009 by Diekman um, in a more broad description of uh, simulation debriefing. And then later on, um, I think Ulmer in 2018 described how different types of uh, culture may have different shapes. They described it was actually from a survey, a, a survey rather than actual debriefings. But um, interestingly, they, they described uh, different cultures um, and they gave they labeled it as areas of the world. I'd, I'd rather not do. I don't think it's quite that simplistic, but certainly a dominant debriefer or a sage on the stage would have more of a fan shaped pattern where all the information and um, questions or statements emit from the debriefer and they come back to the debriefer. And then, you know, a more inclusive debriefing or a more of a guide on the sides type of debriefing would have more of a star shape, you know. So that, that, that's the idea. So we thought this would be really useful to have in real time to give feedback to the, the debriefers that were starting out in their journey to draw attention to some of the things they were doing or some of their behaviors and also use the dash to, to quantify their score and try and change those really key behaviors. Mm, yeah, they're fantastic. And I would uh, encourage people to have a look at these diagrams in the advances article, uh, because I think this idea about just having the fan shape of the debrief route for everyone versus the star where people are actually interacting with each other is quite an important concept. And it's interesting, I remember way back in 2005, doing this at uh, the Harvard Macy program, when we went to watch students doing a PBL, and we drew some of these conversational diagrams. So I think the idea has been kicking around for a while, but it seems quite 
underutilized. So uh, hats off to you about thinking about employing it in this in this context. So we've got these two techniques, sitting there doing the timing, secondly, tracking the diagrams. Um, and as you said, you uh, studied 12 debriefings across two simulation sites from January to March 2019. So as you said, you've already mentioned it was a little bit resource intensive, but can you just tell us, talk us through what a session kind of looked like where you were collecting data? So, I mean, this is this, the, one of the biases here. This is an observational study, clearly. And uh, although it was consecutive debriefings where we had the faculty available, it was, I guess you could say it's a convenient sample because we would do this when we had a debriefer um, and then we had two spare faculty to make sort of measure and provide the feedback. Um, generally speaking, we would have um, one of us uh, doing the diagrams and then maybe providing the feedback and the other person was doing the timings because that was quite laborious. I think one person could probably do this outside of a research setting just by using a chess clock for um, a, you know, swapping the, the, the conversation between the debriefer and, the, and the, the learners. And I think that that person could probably do the diagrams. They're fairly easy. You just basically draw a line when there's a meaningful interaction between the, the people in the conversation. And then at the end of that, we would then provide that feedback to that debriefer. So it was a group of three people working together, one debriefer and then, um, and then two kind of faculty, supervisor faculty, I suppose. And so that's that. Then obviously, we limited the number of the, the debriefings we could include in the study because, like any simulation center, and I'm sure you're in the same position, and the listeners would, would be agreeing that we often are not over resourced when it comes to faculty. Uh, yeah. So it sounds like it was, you know, a little bit resource intensive, but definitely doable. And I think you've already got a few ideas about how you could make it even simpler. Uh, but before we get to that, I suppose we'd better find out what you actually found. So why don't you start with the uh, timing? So you're there with your chess clock. If people haven't seen that, I suggest you watch some of those great TV shows about chess now where you make your move and you press the timer and then you wait till the next person makes their move and you press the timer. But you were doing this when someone new was talking. Is that right? That's right yeah. yeah. Well, what did you find? Well, it's all a bit muddy, of course, but, but I think what we eventually found was we've had 12 debriefings. Nine of them, the debriefer, spoke longer than the participants, which to me was slightly alarming, just as an audit of our own sim center and our own practice. Three of those debriefings, we found that they um, had the learners talking more than the debriefer. So it's simple binary division there. Um, there was quite a difference between those debriefings in terms of the shapes that were, were seen, in terms of those diagrams we were describing before, and also in terms of the learners perception of how they felt the debriefing had felt to them so essentially in the debriefings were the three of them where um, there was the learners talking more they gave a higher dash score and then the the shapes of the diagrams were more interactive more of a star shape whereas the nine debriefings where that suppose the debriefer was more dominant then we found more of a fan shape diagram we also found that the the, the participants weren't as satisfied with the the process and that was statistically significant if not mm. maybe not significant but certainly a statistical, statistical difference between when we group debriefings in that way yeah wow that's uh it is very interesting and as you say quite confronting because it shows yet again that often we're quite insightless about what we actually do as debriefers or as clinicians or as all kinds of uh, performers uh i i guess there is a value judgment in thinking amount of talking matters according to who's doing it but uh, it was interesting that you then took that next step of correlating it with the learner satisfaction as well and it looks like learners do actually like to be engaged in the conversations and participating who'd have thought uh all right and then what about the conversational patterns what did you find so with the conversational part patterns there was three of them described in the original study there was a kind of uh, the fan-shaped fan shapes, which was basically the deep, deeper predominant. There was the star shape, which is the kind of cross chat, the, the guide on the side 
um, nirvana, which we're all aiming for. And then there's this other triangular shape where two or three people dominate. We didn't find that last one quite so much, but we found um, the, the first two were the most common. Um, if you look at the diagrams themselves, it's a little bit hard to tease out the patterns that clearly. But I think overall, you could see clearly that the debriefings where the facilitator was being more of a guide on, guide on the side, there was a lot more crosstalk occurring. So that pattern emerged quite clearly in those three debriefings. And the other nine, um, it's hard to say exactly what's going on there, but there's a kind of a mixture of fan shape and triangular, triangular elements to that shape. We did find the medical students and the nurses talk less. So where you had uh, students and nurses in inter interdisciplinary debriefings, there was a tendency for those people to be relatively left out as well, which is an important thing to point out to your um given the main purpose of the study was for feedback, uh, to point out to your, your debriefer is that maybe people were not as included as much as they could have otherwise been. Mm. So I think the shapes are quite informative. I don't like the word face valid valid validity because it's an obviously ridiculous concept, but in terms of logic to me, it would make sense. If someone's not spoken during a 25-minute debrief, they've not been included in that process. So I don't think you need to do a study to prove that to be a concept. Mm. That's true, although... I think there is a long conversation there, but that's for another time. Uh, but I think you've done a lovely job of illustrating this and you've you've labelled these according to the type of case uh, as well as the learners because I do think the learners matter, as you say, because these are real power dynamics that exist within any group and they can both be enablers or barriers to people actually having very engaging conversations. Uh, and I guess the other part of this then was this was all very nice to see what we thought the debriefers were doing, whether they appreciated it or not but this was also about helping them get better feedback so did this uh being showing people their timing and their diagrams did it actually help people feel like they were improving their debriefing we did a basic likearts um so i suppose a likeart representation of that with the people afterwards that were receiving the feedback and they seemed to enjoy it um we just scored on the scale of one to five on the usefulness of the feedback and the, the average was a 4.6 there um, during those 12 episodes. So, I, I mean, it's not proving anything, but I suppose it would be a suggestion that they liked it, liked it. Whether you whether you like something and it's actually effective or this whole concept is any better than just observing and providing feedback, I don't know. But in, in terms of the, uh, the the debriefers receiving feedback, they seem to like the process and they like the quantitative information they were receiving. Mm, yeah, well, and it certainly, well, to my mind, would plug a gap that might uh, exist, might exist more for some people than others. I think you're right. Some people like different kinds of feedback. That's a very uh, broad, broad issue as well, but uh, all very interesting. Well, I suppose most importantly, this is an obvious point now to think, well, what did you think of what you found? Yeah, well, I'm I'm reluctant to overdraw conclusions from any small observational study, but I think going through the process of doing it, it was really it really improved my ability to give feedback to colleagues. I mean, I don't necessarily use this particular technique every time I watch somebody, but I think subconsciously I was training my brain to observe for certain things. So I think the whole process of doing the study improved my ability to provide coaching, mentoring and feedback to colleagues, which was really the purpose of um, setting out on the adventure, I suppose. So that's from a personal point of view. And from an you know, institutional point of view, I think we are becoming more accepting to um, feedback and we're tailoring that feedback to individual people. And the culture is there very, very much to do with accepting small amounts of feedback and observation of each other's debriefing, I suppose, and facilitation skill. Before the study, we didn't have the typical um, ability or um, requirement or 
attitude towards debriefing each other and giving feedback. And I think what we changed after this was our culture as much as anything else. That's super interesting, isn't it? Because I think what you're hitting on there is that adding these pieces of objective data uh, do what Jenny Rudolph would describe as making performance discussable. And, and I do think that is something that gets in the way. You feel like, oh, my God, Andrew's going to say something not nice about de- my debriefing and now I'm going to feel like I'm a bad person. Actually, this you don't need to scratch too far below the surface when people actually do have these feelings, whereas if you just say, look, here's some data we've got, here's some things, let's have a talk about it, I think it does start to uh, lower that bar to people feeling more comfortable discussing performance. So I think it sounds like it is going to change your practice. Can I ask you, because I'm wondering if there's a room for doing this sometimes just to raise our consciousness without having to add this as a, another whole task for every debrief that we do. Yeah, I think... Essentially, we look at this as an audit of our debriefing practice, and it is glorified in the fact it's published, but essentially it is a small observational study in just the two centers. So I would, I would acknowledge that as a major caveat. Taking that into account, though, I think we can move forward using this in any setting, because if you do this occasionally, it will just draw attention to some basic fundamentals within debriefing, inclusivity, conversational encouragement. Um, asking good questions and all these things tie into what we already know about debriefing which is it's difficult and all of us find it hard and all of us fall back into age-old age-old bad habits I suppose and so by doing this every so often we're essentially auditing ourselves into hopefully better practice whether or not the quantitative information measures performance or is um, associated with good performance in terms of things like dash is kind of uncertain but in terms of just drawing attention to what we do in our behaviours, I think it's quite an effective and easy way to um, to do that. Yeah, and I think that is important, isn't it? Things don't necessarily have to be psychometrically valid to still be useful as a tool for feedback. And uh, I think that's an important distinction to make, and, and I appreciate you not claiming that psychometric validity, and that's another whole um, level of uh, effort to try and do that with a scale or any kind of measure. But I think, as you say, this is an important provocation and reflection tool as well. So just a reminder for Simulcast listeners, we've been talking about uh, immediate faculty feedback using debriefing timing data and conversational diagrams with the first author, Andrew Coggins, from Advances in Simulation in 2022. All right, well, as we start to wrap up here, Andrew, um, I guess you would think about advice to people looking to do something like this. Obviously, they can read your article. They can think about drawing conversational diagrams, getting themselves a chess clock, uh, thinking about how to inform their debriefing. Uh, it sounds like you've also done a fair bit of reading and have some colleagues who've done other work on how to coach debriefers. What would you leave people with as thoughts about where to from here? Yeah, well, I think... Um... Adam Chang, Vincent Grant's paper on coaching is really good. And I think they've described the phases of discovery, growth, um, and maturity within debriefing. And I think this particular technique can be applicable at any of those levels. Whether you're a mature debriefer who's looking to just um, see if you're falling back into some habits of lecturing during your debriefings maybe inappropriately, or whether you're someone who's just starting out that wants to get a a sense of how much time they should talk for and whether that seems to be... um, natural to them and um, where the where, so the ratio of how you interact with your learners i think it can be useful at all these levels just for, as an auditing practice next step from here is going to be looking in more detail about things like um, cumulative totals of questions and whether they can be valid in terms of measuring the quality of debriefing so the question is does this quantitative information actually measure quality or is there an association with the dash the osad and other recognized measures of quality I think, though, overall, it's very hard to assess debriefing because sometimes you just know good debriefing when you see it. 
And there is a gestalt element there, which is never, never going to be relegatable to something that's as simple as um, quantitative matrix. But I think if we measure something or we observe directly, it can be effective. And so I would advise people out there to maybe grab a, an app on their phone, like a chess clock, and just, just, just for interest sake, just time how long they speak for in a debriefing. They might be surprised. I was really surprised to see that the debriefings that we had on average people that were debriefing spoke for 60% of the time. And on average, the learners spoke for 40% of the time because I was sure debriefing would be different to that, but actually it doesn't seem to be. So it might just be a, a case of people going away and taking that way that they can just measure simple things and it might surprise them um, how they speak more than the learners. Yes, I remember Malcolm Gladwell's book Outliers where he really looked at excellent performers across fields and one of his five top tips, I remember one of them was count something if you're trying to get better at your performance. Uh, It doesn't matter what, uh, once you start doing that, you become more aware of your performance. So that sounds very tangible and aligned. Well, Andrew, thank you so much. This has been very interesting. I think it will actually get give me pause for thought to think about some of those things. I can imagine some of those conversational diagrams are not what I think they are in my head. Uh, and I would recommend for our listeners to, to read the paper, have a look at some of the detail that Andrew and his team have done. And I guess I just want to congratulate you on the publication and uh, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks a lot, Vic. Appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to Simulcast. 